Um, and what happens with whiskey, and I've not seen this with a lot of people, when you learn about it and realize how fascinating it is, it tastes better because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's got so much um, uh, heritage, history, craft, uh, and even now, even though we're, we're so industrialized and we have so much knowledge, there's still a lot of craft. Uh, even I mentioned the Coopers, you know, the Coopers are still very much part of the industry, you know, yeah. um, or we still use our noses for quality. Uh, you know, it's not, nothing has been created that can replace that. Um, we're still using those pots that they were using in the 1300s to produce our, our best style of whiskey, in my opinion, which is the pot still whiskey. So all of that, and then, and then the flavors are just amazing. I, I just, we, uh, another episode of the Neighbor Food Podcast. We are your hosts, Jack and Jolene, and today we have a treat in store for all the whiskey aficionados out there. Yes, indeed. Our guest today is Eric Ryan. Now, he is a true expert in the world of whiskey. He's a historian with an unrivaled knowledge of Irish whiskey's captivating past. And he is going to take us on a deep dive into the treasures of our national spirit. And what I kind of learned quickly enough is that actually whiskey is the drink of Ireland and we didn't invent beer, but there's a chance, there's a probability that we invented whiskey and also there's so much heritage that I was unaware of until I started delving into it. So I just went down that rabbit hole and I've never come out really. Uh... So today, Eric actually works as the Powers Distiller, the maturation and innovation specialist at Middleton Distillery. He studied for an MSc in brewing and distilling in Harriet Watt University, and then went headfirst into Irish whiskey distilling, working as a distillery operator from 2010, and he has been there since. Now, he is a regular contributor to the Irish Whiskey magazine and for a time was the secretary of the Cork Whiskey Society and also curated and ran the Cork Whiskey Walk before taking up his role as the Powers Distiller. Get ready for a fantastic synopsis of the timeline of Irish whiskey, starting from the 6th century Irish monks who first distilled this water of life. We're going to learn how this spirit has evolved over the centuries from its humble beginnings to the thriving distilling scene we know and love today. Yeah, and we're also going to tackle the question of whether whiskey was indeed invented here in Ireland or if its origins lie elsewhere and learn about the key events and figures that shaped the industry with captivating anecdotes and stories from the past. But it doesn't stop there because Eric also guides us through the evolution of Irish whiskey production techniques, highlighting the innovations and changes that have occurred over time. We'll also explore the impact of prohibition and other historical events on the Irish whisky industry, understanding how these challenges shaped its trajectory and what it took to overcome them. And of course, this whole time, we have some delightful and intriguing fun facts guaranteed to capture your attention and leave you thirsty for more knowledge about this beloved spirit. And lastly, we will unravel what truly sets Irish whisky apart from other renowned whiskies around the world. Is it a matter of historic roots, provenance and ingredients? Or is it the result of techniques, methods and good marketing? So Eric is going to provide his expert insights on this. So stay tuned as we embark on this incredible journey into the heart and soul of Irish whiskey, guided by the expertise of Eric Ryan. And to start us off, let's find out what drew Eric into the world of Irish whiskey in the first place. (laughs) That's very well written, Jolene. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) That was very captivating. Captivating and tantalizing. There you go, I was on a roll there. Um... So uh, my name is Eric Ryan. I'm a distiller in Middleton Distillery. So um, 
uh, at the moment I'm the powers distiller, but uh, specializing in maturation and innovation. Uh, so I've been working in Middleton distilleries since uh, 2010, so 13 years now. That's a fierce long time. And how did you get into whiskey? Uh, well, originally I was working for uh, Pepsi Cola uh, in Little Island uh, in the city. So it was liquid manufacturing, but I was, I suppose, very much making uh, sugar water. Mm. And uh, I suppose at, at one point I got into my head that I, I wanted to upgrade on the sugar water a little bit. So what you can do with sugar water is add a bit of yeast <laughs> and then you're going to produce a beer. So I thought I'd actually go into, you know, producing beer, maybe get a job in being Mission Crawford or Murphy's. Uh, so I started uh, studying brewing and distilling while working. So I was doing it uh, uh, as distance learning. But as it turned out, uh, I ended up getting into the whiskey industry. You know, you can do something else. You can you can add yeast to the sugar water and then you produce a beer. Then you can distill the beer. And then, of course, you can add the beer or add the whiskey into um, into barrels and mature it. So, uh, yeah, that's where I ended up. Can we just explain the basics of maybe whiskey production? Yeah, so, um, well, really, it starts uh, in the field. It starts with farming um, and uh, it starts with grain because to produce whiskey, uh, you have to use grain. Um, so let's say barley uh, would be a good example. Uh, the, the farmer grows the barley. The barley then, uh, it can be malted in a maltings um, and uh that then produces uh, different flavors, etc., and enzymes. Probably won't go into that, but basically, you can bring that then into uh, a brewery, uh, whether it's to make beer or whether it's to eventually make whiskey. And you can, you know, process it through the brewery um, to produce your beer. And you can then bring it a step further, as I mentioned. You can then bring a beer to a pot still, let's say a traditional copper pot still, and you can distill. Um, so you're now turning that beer, we can call it wash as well here in the distillery. You can now turn that into a spirit. So what you're doing really is you're, I suppose, you're, uh, you're making it clear. Um, you're uh, upping the alcohol uh, concentration or content, but you're also, I suppose, um, uh, increasing um, some of the flavors that are in there um, and that's what you produce then a spirit, which, you know, in the past would have been known as maybe poutine mm. or in America as moonshine if it was illegal. But when it's legal, it's a, it's a spirit. Uh, and then if you want to process that further to turn it into a whiskey, you, you have to mature it, as we say, for a minimum of three years in uh, wooden barrels, generally oak barrels, but we can use other types. So once you do that, then you could then call it whiskey, uh, Irish whiskey in the case of, uh, of Middleton. Um, and you know, that's how you produce it. And that's how it would have been done traditionally going back hundreds of years. It would have been hundred percent malted barley. Then if you want to go up a step further, learn a bit more about it, you can produce it using a variety of different grains together, or in the case of what we do in Middleton, you can use malted barley and unmalted barley in your original mash bill, your original recipe, uh, that goes through your brew house. So, uh, that, that's a kind of a basic idea of it i have actually visited the jameson experience so one of the things that i know and and even still what you explained there was even simpler again but like what i know about how middleton actually produce whiskey is that it's essentially a mega version of the simplest same way mm. that it was always done to the yeah. point where this the stills are actually exactly the same they're just mega 
they look exactly Exa the same. You could you do know? it on, yeah. Like, it's like funny, I shrunk the kids. You know, it's like the opposite. <laughs> uh, everything was just kind of multiplied by 10. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, which, which I think 100. is... Yeah, 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 which is a massive testament to the well, well, um, to the production there, you know? Well, you're right, because if you look at what does Puchin actually mean, it's, it's Gaelic or Irish, and it means little pot. And that oh. name came from the distillers back hundreds of years ago um, that were using little copper pots to distill their their um, their spirit. And that's where the name came from. This spirit was known as Pochin, little pot. Mm. What we're doing is we're doing uh, something very similar, where, as much, they much did, more. with grain, but much larger. We've got maybe uh, on, on put pot more, maybe, put more. You know, the big pot. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, pot more. Um, so it's <laughs> pot more. Yeah, that would be the one it would be called. So it, yeah, New it's really coming out soon. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, it. It all stems from a cottage industry that has industrialized. You know, um, much and like uh, any food and drink that has industrialized, it all started at some stage really, really small and very craft and very um, homemade. I would, I would say, you know. And would would you think that the craft of whiskey making was actually invented here in Ireland? Uh, I think it could be, it could have been, but it's very yeah. hard to say, you know, I mean, the evidence to support it, there's no conclusive evidence because even I suppose the first record of distilling, um, let's say Scotland would be the big competitor with Ireland, but the first record of distilling um, that we're aware of is from about the 1320s. Yeah. And that was actually a Franciscan um, Bishop, Richard de Ledred. Okay. Uh, and uh, he came straight from Avignon in France, actually, which was the seat of the uh, the Christian church at that time, not Rome. It was actually in Avignon. And uh, when he came here, he he settled in Kilkenny. He was the Bishop of Kilkenny, of Ossery. It would have been the Bishop of Ossery. But there was a book called the Red Book of Ossery, uh, which uh, was found in the 1800s, I believe, in a, in a skip. <laughs> so okay. it, it got saved almost from being lost. But inside that, there's lots of... Um, uh, documentation from the 1300s and, and later written by various uh, uh, bishops uh, and friars, etc. And some of it was from Richard de Ledred and he left recipes for distilling aquavitae. Um, so his aquavitae recipes were very much based on what was happening in Europe at the time. So he used some wine and he used a kind of, um, uh, I suppose, botanicals, um, herbs and spices, and that kind of thing to produce mm. is aquavitae. Aquavitae is Latin because Latin was the language of the church yeah. and it means water of life. Yeah. And uh, Irish Ishkabaha, uh, Ishkabaha, Ishkaba is another one. They all came from, it's just the Gaelic for water of life. So the evidence for the first distilling is, is in Ireland way before Scotland, but it's produced from wine so it would be more like a brandy it's like a cross between brandy and gin almost in that mm -hmm. it was produced from wine but also had botanicals in there and this is something that actually stayed until almost the 1700s botanicals were oh. used quite a bit ireland was famous for uh, yellow water as they called it because they used to, they used to use a lot of saffron uh, and that gave it a yellow color and again a lot of this mm -hmm. is because uh, people felt it had curative properties Okay. Aquavitae was considered almost a medicine, um, and it was, you know, considered so by the by the church for a long time. And eventually, at some point, it went away from just friars and bishops and maybe um, monks 
uh, and eventually went over to the common people in a certain way and it became a kind of an agricultural practice. Yeah. 1405, there was a recorded the death of a, an Irish chieftain um, from drinking a surfeit of aquavitae. What so did he, he drink? From, a surfeit? A surfeit, a surfeit, which means kind of um, an excess of aquavitae over okay, Christmas. Right. In four, I think it was 1405. Yeah. Um, so what, it's probably the first um, recording of drinking aquavitae, whiskey, spirits, whatever, uh, as a recreational mm-hmm. drink. Uh, and again, okay. that first record is in Ireland, but we don't know really whether that was produced <laughs> with wine or produced via beer. Or so we've a, we've yeah, a long and interesting process. history with the with the joys but, of alcohol, yeah. it sounds like. And, and at the and at the end of that century is the first conclusive evidence really of using grain to okay. produce the spirit, which now you're talking about kind of what traditionally is whiskey uh, or spirit uh, made from grain, uh, which then became whiskey. And that mm-hmm. would have been, I think it was 1494, okay. and a uh, friar John Core in Scotland uh, that was making aquavitae from the malt. Uh, so that's where the Scottish claimed that their evidence of being the first to produce it, but it was nearly 200 years before that there was evidence of distilling in Ireland. So at some point, somebody had the idea to just distill the beer because it was a lot cheaper, first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot more of it around. Um, so for the, I suppose, for the, the Irish chieftains, for the Anglo-Norman lords, for the Christian church uh, officials, they were wealthy. They could afford to distill with wine, but for the mm. others uh, who, who a lot of the time um, sustained themselves via farms, etc., they mightn't have even had uh, cash to buy wine. A lot of it would have been a barter system. Uh, you had excess crops. Uh, you had beer. Your beer would only last so long. So what's the natural thing to do is to distill that beer sure. um, mm. or that ale to make it last. And then what happened is it became a, 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 almost like a currency in itself. Yes. So uh, the spirit, the putching, et cetera, became, became a currency. Um, okay. So that's kind of where it came from. And did I hear that at one point, Ireland actually had the biggest sales of Irish whiskey in the whole entire world? Or Ireland was the biggest seller of whiskey? Yeah, that would be probably jumping forward to the 80s. Oh, I, I hold your horses, Jolene. There's way more that you've got to tell me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we really uh, kind of excelled in it over the years, didn't we? Yeah, well, I mean, even if you're looking at the 1500s, uh, the Irish kind of yellow water was mm. known even in England and London and kind of famous for distilling that, which was Ishkaba as it became known as. Um, and that was adding the botanicals, the saffron, raisins, yeah. uh, etc. Even during wartime, um, there was a guy, Fines Morrison, I think was... Is a 1601 was the Battle of Kinsale. Um, he was the secretary to Lord Mountjoy, who was eventually victorious for the English against the, I suppose, the Gaelic chieftains and the Spanish who were okay. fighting in that war. Um, and he left, um, you know, uh, comments on how great the quality was of the Irish um, Ishkaba, I think he called it. Um, and he said, much better than what you can get in England. And, um, you know, so there was all these records and, uh, Apparently, Queen Elizabeth was a, a fan of it and um, Peter the Great of Russia, etc. But this was very much at the time when it was almost more like it was like a kind of a, a spirit produced with, with grain, but then raisins and, and botanicals, mm-hmm. etc. And saffron and stuff kind of uh, distilled with it um, and maybe considered more um, 
a thing to have when you have the cold or when you have the flu. And um, I suppose it would have been a product of um, what today we would call chemists, uh, whatever, you know, back in those days, um, apothecaries, they would have been known as. Uh, it would have been a. It would have been. Um, I suppose, especially in the sixteen hundreds, it would have been a business like on the high street. Someone who would have little stills in the back, and they would prepare these kind of aquavitae and ishkaba and ishkabaha type medicines and mm -hmm. sell them. Um, as well as that, you had distilling in the big houses, etc., and you had distilling in the farms. So there was lots of this going on. It was very much um, an everyday activity for a lot of people. Um, but then things, I suppose, from after the sixteen hundreds maybe 1608, you'd see the first licenses to distill. Yeah. So the, the Crown had spent a lot of money putting down rebellions in Ireland. They were almost bankrupt, actually, by that war, which I mentioned about the Battle of Kinsale. That went on for nine years, nearly bankrupted the English state to, to put it down. Uh, so they needed money. So what governments normally look at, if we, we'd be more aware of it now, but uh, they'd normally look to um, put taxes on, you know, uh, beer and wine and alcoholic uh, drinks uh, and that's what they did in 1608 so really the, the first licenses to distill in the world were in Ireland 1608 um, a lot of people have heard about the license to distill up in uh, I suppose the Antrim area um, the route or the route as it was known as but Bushmills have kind of taken that to say that that's their heritage no okay. their distillery wasn't founded in 1608 but that's kind of where they pulled that date and that year from but okay. it was also in the same year um i think there was a guy called woodhouse uh, got a license in munster to distill and he, basically he had to pay money to the crown sure. uh, and then he he was the legal distiller in munster but he didn't mean he had to do it he could then charge others to distill in his area um and really what happened then you know back in those days 1600s it was all malt it was 100 malt that would have been used um because malt is very good for for um i suppose creating a beer uh, and for then distilling that beer because it has lots of um enzymes and lots mm. of uh vitamins and minerals etc that all works well with the yeast uh and works well in your brewing but as it went into the uh 1600s 1700s all of these various attempts by the crown to get taxes weren't really working all that well I mentioned little pots, putching, you know, anytime they went into an area to try and get their taxes, these little pots would disappear. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. So <laughs> scarper off into the hills or hide them and say, oh, we don't do any distilling around here, you know. So yeah, yeah. Uh, they, towards the end of the 1700s, they came up with a new idea, uh, which was, okay, everybody's using malt to distill this popular drink called whiskey. Uh, at this stage, by the 1700s, it it was all it was started to be known as whiskey and sometimes it would have been matured in barrels before that it was very much local um consumption very much um i suppose uh distilled uh off the still and almost drank from the still okay. you know uh for a very much a very a local market yeah. but then um 1700s you started to see a bit more time spent in the oak but still you know not so much um and the stuff the, off the stills was like putching that everybody was drinking, basically. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. a spirit, uh, basically, yeah. And a clear um, white. It would have been if it was straight off the still. No, they might have put it into a barrel for storage, but it wouldn't have lasted very long, I imagine, um, in that it would have been sold in the local area, no need to transport it. Uh, and, um, you know, the odd occasion you might get something that might be there two months, maybe, I'd say. But I'd mm -hmm. say literally most of the time... A couple of weeks yeah. uh, in the in the barrel while they were selling it, 
um, if even that. But the so the the crown decided to put taxes on malt because okay. the, the the malt houses were big buildings, uh, generally in the big towns and cities. And they said if these distillers refuse to pay their taxes, then we'll catch them because they have to use malt to produce their whiskey. And then what happened is, I suppose, the distillers uh, started to get very innovative uh, and experimented even more than they had been doing previously with using raw grains, unmalted grains. Uh, And that happened in a big way in Ireland. Uh, So I suppose the first bonus is they managed to, to, to cheat the crown out of a lot of the taxes that they were trying to get. Uh, but what happened on the other side is it, it created a new style of whiskey, which became known as pot still whiskey, Irish pot still whiskey. And there was a few bonuses with that in that it tasted differently. And their consumers, you know, the local population in Ireland in particular, pref- preferred this style. Mm. Uh, and as you went into the 1900s, Ireland got a reputation for the quality of this style of whiskey. And because the excise uh, in those days, we're also trying to encourage distillers to set up in the towns and the cities, which a lot of them were on the coast. Um, they wanted men of means, gentlemen that they could trust, and also they could. it would be less expensive to keep an eye on the distilleries if they were large and they were in the big cities. So all of the uh, efforts were, were made to change the laws to encourage it, and it worked. Uh, 1779, you got the first big distillery, industrialized distillery set up in Cork by the Wise Brothers. Uh, it became known as Wise's Distillery, North Mal Distillery, and it was followed soon after by lots more. Um, and the same thing happened in Dublin in particular, uh, and in you know lots of the big towns. So you started to see industrial distilleries all of a sudden cropping up all over Ireland in the late 1700s and the early 1800s. Um, and a lot of them, you know, survived for a very long time. Uh, so I have a question what happened now. then is the Pucci so just... Before, yeah, you yeah. Go, before you run ahead there now, because this is fascinating about the pot still whiskey, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's yeah. the quintessential Irish style of whiskey, right? And like, so we got away yeah. with this malted and unmalted barley, and we weren't taxed on the unmalted barley. Is that what you're saying? Is that what happened? We didn't have to pay a malt tax but on not the element the that wasn't malted. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, so it is. And what what they were lucky is that there was enough of the enzyme activity, as we call it. You know, enzymes, we have enzymes in our mouth. It helps to break things Mm -hmm. down. Uh, you know, so for the for the grain, what it does is when it's when the grain goes into the ground, it's waiting for spring. It's waiting for lots of water and lots of sunshine. And when that starts happening, it releases enzymes internally in in the grain. These enzymes then go and start breaking down cell walls, which are very hard. You know, if you have a bite of grain, it it breaks those down. And then there's other enzymes. There's all these different enzymes have different jobs. The other enzymes then go in and break down a thing called a protein matrix. And then the last one is the starch. There's enzymes that break down starch into sugars. What the grain actually does in the field is then it starts consuming the sugars and starts sprouting, you know, roots. And then uh, as, as it gets stronger, it starts shooting up with the shoot. So basically grain is a grass. Mm. Uh, and that's what it does. And what you do in a brew house is you actually trick that grain into thinking it's springtime with hot water. And it's, mm. it, you know, it's when you're malting, that's what you do. You get it to start doing that process. But in malting, what you do is you dry it out. So you trick it into thinking it's time to grow. Oh, it's springtime. Time for me to grow. Release those enzymes. It breaks down the protein, breaks down the cell wall. But just as it's about to break down the starch, what you do when in maltings is you dry it. Mm. So when you dry it, it's 
stops and thinks, oh, it's not springtime, I have to stop, and it literally freezes. And what happens then is if you pick that up, it's it, it's actually softer and sweeter. Okay. Uh, so that's actually malt, okay? And it has a nice malty kind of uh, sweet biscuity flavor. Um, that malt then can be sent to, to, a, to a, a brew house, and then when you add water again, it, it starts the whole process again, and the enzymes that are going to break down the starch, break down the starch into sugars, et cetera, et cetera. But what happened in Ireland, and this is how we got our reputation for pot still whiskey, is because these distilleries were located, let's say in Cork, uh, on the river, let's say in Dublin, near the port, uh, you know, all of this, there was lots of cheap Welsh coal, which was coming into Ireland via these ports. Okay. Um, and because we weren't in, in the hinterland, it was actually less expensive to use coal to, in the mall things to do destroying or anthracite, mm -hmm. which is a smokeless fuel, uh, than it was to go and get peat from the interior of the country and 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 basically bring it by horse and cart across the country through very, very bad roadways. It's actually more expensive to do that than it was mm -hmm. to get a ship to come from the mines in, in Wales and come across. So we then got a reputation for uh, smokeless or, or whiskey that didn't, doesn't have that kind of peaty or smoky flavor. Mm -hmm. um, and because we also had no industrial distilleries, very large, it gave us more consistency because when you're producing in larger batches, when you do it well, you have way more consistency than when you were doing it as a small backyard or craft distillery, which is making small batches each time. Yeah. Which they kept on doing. They kind of in, in the way it was in Scotland. Then is you had all these malt distilleries located throughout the, the country, especially in the Highlands. They were all inland. They had access to local uh, peat, which was easier for them to use. So they kept the reputation for smoky whiskey and smaller. They were making smaller batches because they were smaller distilleries, and their consistency wasn't as good at that time. Yeah. Um, so I love how all these we got a reputation things then. have just kind of paved the path for the Irish taste. Of yeah, that we all know and love. And that's a really and, yeah, clear that, explanation for how it all ended up the way it did, you know. And it's it's tax and geopolitically related. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is. I mean, and uh, you know, I suppose even the recipes and you know, pot still whiskey. By the way, just to give you a quick explanation on it, we triple distill here in in Middleton, and uh, historically a lot of pot still whiskey was triple distilled. But you do not have to triple distill; mm. you can double distill. What that means, Jack, if you, 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 I don't know if you know that, but you, you know, if you came to visit here, we'd have a set of three pots, big copper pots, and we distill from one into the other, into the other. Maybe if you go to a and, Scottish and each, distillery, each, each one's exactly the same, right? Yeah, well, it's they can't. The you can have different, thing, or do you change you, the you, setting you, each time? You can have different sizes. Uh, bars just are the same size, but you can run them in a different manner. It just depends on each distiller what way they do it but um your your first deal really is about distilling everything in there almost like a kettle you boil it up you want to get all the alcohol all the flavors that are in there into the next pot and then at the next pot generally in a double distillation distillery you're now going to distill again and you have the thing called cut points where you say right this the, the distiller coming over here at the start doesn't taste the way we want it to taste so you actually you're 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 you kind of save that in a receiver or in a vessel we're not going to send this forward into the next pot when it gets to a point that you like the flavor you do your cut point and then that cut then will cut it and send it into another receiver that you're going to use uh, as your spirit let's say if we were a double mm -hmm. distilled uh, and then towards the end of the distilling you'd have another cut point where you'd recycle again 
the end of the distillation because the flavors are getting waxy, a bit impure, not really good. So though there, there, those things are called the distiller's cut points. And that, that's how you eventually get a recipe for whatever distillate you make. But in the case of us, that spirit that, you know, they would put into, into casks and call whiskey, we actually put it into another pot and go through that same procedure again and distill again. So we're kind of getting the heart of the distillate, maybe the heart of the heart, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just a tradition that built up in Ireland uh, to try and target certain flavors and what those flavors would be, especially if you're looking in the early 1800s, is a kind of a lighter, more fragrant, fruitier spirit. Um, whereas uh, the stuff from Scotland or double distilled tends to be a bit heavier, yeah. a bit more cereal based. And what happened in Ireland is that we got a reputation for this style that it was uh, probably easier to mix, easier to drink at the time. Um, you know, especially when you're looking at the 1800s today is the best whiskey you'll ever drink, you know, in history mm. because of, uh, it's the truth. It's because of, it's because of our knowledge. It's how we know where, you know, our knowledge of where the flavor comes from yeah. with regard to engineering, with regard to, you know, biochemistry, with regard to, um, wood uh you know wood management all of that all stuff those, but in the 1800s i can imagine triple distilling uh using uh i suppose unmalted grains um and also uh using large pots you see thing to make a bigger batch what it does is the copper mm. of the pot cleanses your spirit so mm. the more of that copper and vapor interaction you get the cleaner your spirit becomes mm. so you right. be, by having these large pots with the big long swan necks as we call them and the lion arm you're actually cleansing that spirit even more so that gives you a better quality spirit and this was happening in ireland in you know in the 1800s the biggest mm. pot stills in the world are in middleton distillery today 80,000 liters capacity well, but the biggest that was ever used in the world is in Middleton today, but we don't use it anymore. It's mm -hmm. from the old distillery that was built in 1825, closed in 1975. But that size still is 144,000 litres. This is the Irish distilling industry in the 1800s. That was installed in 1854. Mm -hmm. um, Wise's distillery that I mentioned earlier in Cork City, which they had still 100,000 litres in capacity. So like they were all doing this 200 years ago you know it's uh, mm. it's amazing to think now um, it's amazing to think to think how progressive yeah. they were wasn't it like could you yeah. um I, I don't know if this might be an interesting point to talk about the difference then in the distilling method so you've got the pot still uh, but then you've mm -hmm. got also like the column still would that be a good kind of uh, progression to talk yeah about that it would because you're going into the 1800s and um, I suppose uh, early 1800s previous to that for the hundreds of years previous to that it was always copper pots mm. um but especially um in ireland with the large copper pots really big pots it's fine putting like these were all direct fired so mm. you would light a fire and have your copper pot sitting on top of that and that's how you'd get your heat and you'd distill and you know um especially in Ireland, I imagine, as the pots became bigger and bigger, and especially so after 1823, there was a change to the excise laws, and then they, came, they became even bigger again. Yeah. Um, 
there was teams of men had had a job basically to to shovel coal in under these pots uh, and to keep the fire and to keep it at a consistent temperature. Um, and then there was also it was a batch. It is a batch process. This traditional mm-hmm. process. So at the end of distillation, when you're finished with everything, uh, they'd empty it out and guys would go into the still, cleaning the inside of the still and all of that. And the reason for that is because uh, you don't want any scorching solids sticking to the inside of the still and that will cause an off flavor. But can you imagine trying to keep a fire lit at a consistent temperature for a pot the size of 144,000 liters? So task. It, it was very time consuming, uh, I suppose very expensive on coal, uh, as well as that backbreaking work for the men that did it and quite dangerous work as well, especially for the guys who had to get into the pot mm. because uh, that today now, you know, we'd be very, very, we, we don't re- very, very careful anyone getting into a pot. Um, it's a confined space. There's lots of health and safety aspects to it. You know, back in those days, I'd say it finished as long as the temperature went down, the fellas would be jumping in trying to clean it. Uh, and, you know, gases could be in there. You, you know, you could suffocate. So it must have been very, very dangerous. Mm. So there was a lot of individuals um, looking for a more efficient way and a safer way uh, to distill. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a very interesting character. He was an Irishman called Aeneas Coffey. Mm. And uh, Aeneas Coffey, strangely enough, was uh, an excise official. So he started, I think, in the excise. Um, I think he started in the 1800 uh, as a customs and excise officer. And he, w- he was based throughout the country. Actually, from 1779 to 1823 in Ireland, uh, it was known as the Puchin Wars. Uh, so for a long time, the Puchin makers, who didn't just go away, were kind of in battle with the Parliament whiskey, as they call it. So those were the legal distillers. And a lot of the excise, yes, they looked after legal distillers, but they also looked after chasing down Puchin distillers. Uh, Aeneas Coffey, uh, at one stage, I think it was um, around 1808, uh, was nearly killed by a gang of about 50 Puchin distillers up in Donegal. And um, he... um, got stabbed through the tie and got clubbed across the head a couple of times, but managed to survive. So he went through the battles as a customs and excise official, went up through the ranks. He worked in Dublin. He worked in Cork, Donegal, eventually became head of excise in Ireland. But he was a very, very smart man. Uh, He was, I think he had a kind of inventor's uh, blood in him. Uh, In 1821, he was involved in um, uh, doing some work for the excise, but he, he, he actually helped to design the spirit safe which we'd all know. Uh, those um, experimentations took place in Carrick Fergus in a place called the Thompson Distillery. Um, and then later on, uh, he was very much involved in changing the excise laws to make it easier for legal distillers to distill. And uh, he, I suppose he felt that if the laws were made a bit more easier for the legal distillers, then you'd see more legal distillers and less of the illegal pushing distillers. And it actually worked. Um, but... Uh, he also was a guy who came up with the invention for the padlocks that you'd see on um, throughout distilleries throughout the world, uh, which is um, the customs and excise uh, locks, which would be on everything. Uh, okay. And his idea was to put a cardboard on the inside of the lock. So yeah. if you have your key and, you, and if you need to open that lock, it perforates the cardboard. But that cardboard would have a customs and excise stamp or a signature. Uh, and he suggested this design, I think, in the 1823, and it eventually was brought in in 1829. And it was used for, you know, 150 years. Um, so if, if, if a legal distiller wanted to try and 
get up to no good and get away with some of his taxes, he'd have to open that lock. And the only way to open it was to perforate the cardboard. So yeah, that was something involved with him. <laughs> but he left the excise uh, service. He had, he had actually worked his way right up to the top. So he was head of excise in Ireland and then left, strangely enough, at his own request to retire from excise. I think it was 1824. And he started uh, experimenting, I suppose, or trialing new methods of distilling. Okay. And uh, it became known as the coffee still. So he became a distiller for a short term in Ireland, up yeah. in Dublin. He had, um, I think it was called, um, I think it was Dodder Bank Distillery. Right. And I think there was another place as well up there. But he uh, submitted a patent or a patent, as you'd call it, for a new continuous distilling um, still. And uh, it actually went on, this was 1830, uh, it went on to dominate the world. Uh, it became known as the coffee still because his name is Aeneas Coffee. Uh, and uh, it's basically the design that's used throughout the world now, um, based on that same design uh, of column stills, which are, they look quite different to your traditional copper pots. They're tall, they're cylindrical or square or kind of rectangular. And they, they basically, you pump in steam. So it's it's steam rather than direct firing, if you know what I mean. Mm, and that yeah. steam goes up through the plates within the column. It's a, a set of two columns. Uh, and your beer or your wash is fed in continuously. The steam strips it in the first column, takes the alcohol and the flavors across. Remember I mentioned that first still in mm -hmm. the pot still? Mm -hmm. It's doing that first still job. And then at the next column, it's actually what you're doing is you're, um, you're, you're raising up the strength and uh, with steam again. Uh, and he also, it, it kind of included a heat exchange for the first time okay. uh, as an invention. Um, and uh, it was more efficient. Uh, it was safer, it was cleaner, it was continuous, and it was less costly. Yes. Um, so it, it, you'd think it would just take over, but it didn't completely take over because the pot still whiskies give you more flavor. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happened here in Ireland is because in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, even 1860s, Irish pot still whiskey was the number one whiskey style in the world. Uh, the Scots were behind trying to find a way to kind of compete. And that way was actually provided by coffee, strangely enough. And he was an Irishman. So strangely for the distillers in Scotland, a guy called Coffee, an Irishman, really <laughs> kind of gave them. Yeah. That, what happened is they used his stills to produce a, uh, what's what we call today grain whiskey, mm -hmm. a lighter style of whiskey. But someone in the 1860s, because there was a lot of changes in the excise laws again you you are now allowed to blend under bond under bond means without paying your taxes in warehouses and they started blending the grain whiskey with the with the kind of more i suppose robust, potent I and i suppose that. more smoky robust kind of malt whiskey and they created blended whiskey and now for the first time they could create more consistency less of that dominant smokiness mm. uh, so a bit of it but not so much and more consistency, and the bonus was they could produce it at a lower price than yeah, the, the traditional pot stills. So then like that money that they cheaper. saved. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And then they were able to um <laughs> they were able to go into marketing in a big way. That's what they did. Uh, and in fairness, they did it really well. And then they for the first time, Scotch started eating into the market share of Irish. And then you kind of started to see things change a bit. Um so that kind of that's that's probably the late 1800s. People like Dewar and Walker and Hague's and all of these that became very very famous. But the late 1800s allied to the popularity of Scottish culture at that time in England. Trains 
were invented in the 1800s. And for the first time, you know, in the 1800s, you could get a train from London to the Highlands. Um, so it, it all came along at the right time. And bottling and branding came along in a big way in the late 1800s. And all of that helped the Scots uh, and the Irish were slow to adopt into that. Because if you look at, let's say, Jameson, 1718, Powers, 1791, Wise's, 1779, all of these, they used to make whiskey and sell it to middlemen, to mm. wine merchants, to spirit merchants, to publicans, etc. And these people then bottled it themselves and sold it. Or earlier than that, they'd just sell it either from a barrel uh, in, in a pub or from a barrel in a shop and people used to come in with their earthenware jugs, mm-hmm. pay for it, get it filled up, go home, drink it over whatever time and use the same jug and bring it back. We probably need to bring this kind of stuff back actually <laughs> into, our, into our world. It's a new sustainable you know? way of um, uh, drinking whiskey. <laughs> it's, they did a lot of things sustainable back in the day. You know, yeah. even if you look at Middleton Distillery and the water wheels, they used water power to to, to run their distilleries. They didn't have electricity. They, you know, it's... Um, a lot of things they were doing back then were, you know, were amazing. There was a distillery in Dublin actually, and um, uh, ha- had a big windmill, which is still okay. there. The, the George Road Distillery and powered the distillery via a windmill, you know. So, um, there's a lot of stuff they used to do in the past that we probably need to look at again. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. So, Eric, yeah, I'm that's like, what happened. Going, are you going to take a breath at all? Like, <laughs> what I an know, amazing. I know. But you know yourself. You know your. I, this is like an absolute rabbit hole, the amount of information that you're after throwing out there. And so yeah, it's really, really fascinating. It's like the full history of it. The, yeah. the full history in, yeah. in 30 minutes, but not even the full history, because I know there was a whole thing with prohibition as well, wasn't there? There was, as you went to the 1900s. And then, so now you had the Irish competing with the Irish potstill whiskey competing with the Scottish blends. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but then, when you got to, I suppose, the early 1900s, there was a lot of taxes started to go on whiskey. Um, so it's becoming more of a luxury product than it was previously. So if you look at the 70, maybe the late 1700s, all through the 1800s, whiskey was the drink of the Irish people. It wasn't stout. But as taxes started getting put onto, onto whiskey, um, and this was encouraged by the brewers, of course, uh, Arthur Guinness uh, actually was... Uh, one of the lobbyists to the government uh, at the time you had the Irish Parliament pre-1800 when he was around and one of his sayings was uh, um, beer is the nurse of the people whiskey is the curse of the people and you know <laughs> That's a good that, <laughs> that lobbying that lobbying actually worked and they started putting more taxes so and this this amplified more in the 1900s um, so you started to see it's, it's, it's in Ireland especially and probably in Britain that people moved more to, to, to drinking beer as their go-to drink. Um, but uh, when we went into the First World War, Lloyd George was a, um, a teetotaler. So he he, he put lots more um, uh, taxes on it as well. He said it was part of the war effort. He actually wanted to ban it outright, but um, some lobbying by the brewers and distillers prevented that. But that was the first time you see three years as a minimum age for whiskey. So that was one of the deals they came to. Instead of just banning it, let's put a three-year minimum and that's what they did. So when you see three years as the law for Irish whiskey and Scottish whiskey, it's because of what happened in the First World War. And that was brought in by Lloyd George. Um, so then when you got to, you know, 1919, 1920, 1919, the Volstead Act uh, was brought in in America. And by 1920, it was put into operation, which meant 
selling whiskey or any other alcoholic product uh, really in the States or producing it or transporting it was made illegal. Uh, and um, that was always a big market for Irish whiskey. Um, the other big market for Irish whiskey was Britain, London, the British Empire markets, Australia, Canada, all of those. Uh, because we know uh, 19, um, the same time, 1919, 1920, there was a war of independence. So we were literally re rebelling against the British Empire. So I imagine sales went off a cliff in the British Empire for Irish whiskey. And then to make matters worse, uh, we went into a civil war right after that. And in Ireland itself, we did get kind of semi-independence from most of the country. Uh, it was known as the free Irish Free State, but sales in Ireland went to 25% of what they were wow. in the early 1900s. So the distillery after the distillery after the distillery closed down. And uh, I just have to plug this in one second. Yeah, no bothers. And that's, can you hear me okay? Yes, can hear you, you loud and clear. Yeah, so that's what happened then. Um, that you started to see the Irish whiskey industry nearly fall apart to nothing. It it wow. it literally went from being the dominant whiskey industry in the world to being a bit part player by the 1930s. Um, and Scotch also had difficulties, but ended up stronger because uh, the DCL was. Oh, something kind of strange happened there now. Hmm. The, the stillers company you still with me yeah we, you're back there now again we lost you there for a second okay you can hear me okay yeah so i was yeah. just saying that so we um, were talking about when we were really at the peak of our game and then we were down to 25 percent um yeah that's where we yes were. and distillery distillery after distillery closed down in ireland and by the by the 1930s uh we were very much bit part players We've been forgotten about even in the States because uh, Scotch whiskey managed to get into the States during Prohibition. Mm. And if you got a bottle of Scotch in Prohibition, uh, it was if it was the real deal, it's really good quality because it's from, a, a, you know, a, a distillery, an actual distillery uh, made to quality standards, whereas a lot of the stuff in Prohibition was bathtub gin and very uh, dangerous stuff uh, produced anywhere and everywhere. Uh, so it got a reputation for quality uh, during Prohibition, but you couldn't really, you couldn't get okay. good Irish whiskey during Prohibition. Um, and so it, it kind of went from there. Then Scotch started to become the drink of America for whiskey. By, by the Second World War, the GIs, they were stationed in Britain and part of their rations, I believe, was Scotch. So they, had, they got a taste from that during the war. And when they went back, you're, you look at the 1950s, I don't know if you've ever watched Mad Men. Oh, yeah. But it's all Scotch on the rocks, yeah. Scotch and soda. These guys came back. These are the heroes. They're drinking scotch. So everyone else starts drinking scotch. And, you know, this was up to the detriment of Irish whiskey, mm. but for a long time to the detriment of American whiskey as well. Um, and really, it's only the last few decades that, you know, American whiskey and Irish whiskey and Japanese and others are starting to get rep our reputations back almost, mm. you know. Mm. Fascinating. That's Absol incredible. Absolutely We're up to like... So we're here now, we're after Prohibition, right? Irish sales not doing great. But if you look, I mean, what year was Prohibition? 1920s, wasn't it? So we're talking 100 years ago? 1919 to 1933, yeah. 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 So, so roughly 100 years it, ago. It was a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. You so if it was 100 years ago, we're right, we're right in the middle of Prohibition. You know? Right in the middle of Prohibition. It's kind of hard to believe. Yeah. But like 100 years later, 
even in the last kind of 20 years, like Irish whiskey has gone through a whole other revolution, hasn't it? Because all these series kind of like basically died down and have mushroomed back up again. So what has happened in the last hundred years and what's happened in the last decade, more importantly? Well, what what happened, even if I just reference Scotch again, what Mm. saved the Scotch industry was an amalgamation. Mm. And it was to form DCL, Distillers Company Limited. And actually, some they bought up a lot of distilleries. Uh, they they had all the grain distilleries. And then they also started buying up the malt distilleries and some of the brands like Johnny Walker and all of these, they joined. So they all joined forces, became stronger, uh, bought up distilleries and closed them down. Uh, and then they also produced industrial uh, spirit as well and yeast and all. This. So they, they kind of... I suppose instead of just whiskey, they, they branched out a little bit, you know. Yeah. So they managed to survive and be strong by the 1930s. They actually bought a lot of Irish distilleries and closed them down as well to remove okay. competition yeah. at the time. Um, so I suppose when you then look at the Irish industry, everybody closed down. And by the 1960s, you had only three left. You had Cork Distilleries Company, which was Middleton Distillery and Watercourse Road Distillery. Mm-hmm. And you had... Um, John Power and Son, which was Bo, um, which was John's Lane Distillery in Dublin, and you had John Jameson and Son, which was um, Bow Street Distillery in Dublin. They realised they needed to amalgamate to mm. save the industry uh, because it was on its knees at that stage. So that's what happened. There was negotiations for a long time. You have to remember they they were massive competitors for 150 years or whatever before that. So it took a lot of negotiations, but eventually they decided to amalgamate, and that happened in 1966. That formed Irish Distillers, which is the, that's why I work for today. Um, so they had to do a lot of things to save the industry. If you imagine now, 1966, these distilleries were still producing pot still whiskey, the mm. traditional whiskey. Now, Cork Distilleries Company were also producing grain whiskey, but they, they weren't blending it. It was almost like, you know, uh, we'd sell grain whiskey on its own. So they did, they did have the column stills in Watercourse Road. And they were, produ- Cork Distilleries Company were producing industrial uh, spirit as well and also they were doing yeast so they were doing pretty well uh, Jameson were just producing traditional pot still whiskey Powers were producing traditional pot still whiskey a Powers gin I think there was a Powers vodka uh, and they had been experimenting secretly with producing grain whiskey but hadn't really been put out there yet so they they amalgamated but they had, they had lots of decisions to make and it was I imagine and I know this is true it was very difficult at the start they kind of the chairmanship passed between the various families the Murphys the Jamesons the Powers um, but they eventually realized they had to get an outsider uh, and uh, they got um, they got an outsider I'm not forgetting his name though he was well at RTE um, but basically he came to run the uh, to run Irish distillers and to make the hard decisions you need okay. someone to come in uh, that you know looks at it cleanly and makes the right decision for the business and a few key decisions were made number one we have to start producing blended whiskey for an export market because that's what the world drinks mm-hmm. it was blended whiskey throughout the world why aren't we doing that the second thing was we at that stage they, some of them were bottling in-house but also selling to middlemen like i mentioned so this was still happening um, as it was in the 1800s, where if you had a pub, you could buy from the distillers and you could bottle yourself. If you had a wine merchant's business, you could do the same thing. Mm-hmm. They said, we're no longer going to be selling to these middlemen. Uh, the third thing was, we're going to have to build one, eventually, a couple of years, we're going to have to build one super distillery 
uh, you know, because if you keep them all going, you're not getting a cost stone, they're not going to survive. Yeah. Uh, and um, I suppose the other one was to decide on one brand for the export-led market. So what they decided to do was make Jameson the one for the export market, which mm-hmm. has proven to be a big success. Uh, they decided to build in Middleton because there was plenty of land uh, there was plenty of water down here, good quality water, access to the best barley in, in Ireland, in East Cork, Waterford, Wexford. Um, and uh, I suppose um, the workforce was here with that experience already as well. Uh, so all of these factors made, meant Middleton became the new super distillery and all the others mm. closed down. Uh, and um, all of those decisions worked in the long run, but it took a lot of work and a lot of time. Uh, so for the first time ever, the world got to know Jameson as a blended whiskey. Uh, and um, that means you produce your traditional pot still whiskey, which we have never stopped doing. You produce the grain whiskey via columns, the design based on the design of Aeneas Coffee from 1830. Uh, so we finally said okay to these uh, columns in a big way. And you you the, the, you mature the, the distillates and the whiskey that's there at the end, casks of grain whiskey, as we call it, casks of pot still whiskey, you blend them together in different proportions for the different brands. Um, and that's basically what slowly got Ireland back into the uh, consciousness, I suppose, of the of the world. Um, and it took decades, however. Uh, but the strength of Jameson then was increased by uh, 1988, Perna Ricard. Uh, Perna Ricard actually took over Irish distillers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually welcomed in at the time. Uh, it wasn't, um, it was a, a friendly takeover. Uh, and it was very much uh, the management team in Ireland carry on managing the business, but it's now part, part of the Perno group, um, except now you have access to their amazing distribution network, plus their marketing muscle, you know, um, and all the resources that go with that. So you really saw a big jump in sales of Jameson from the 90s onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, it was the 1990s was the first time Jameson hit a million cases. So it wow. took from 1780 until the 1990s to hit a million cases. Goodness Today, God. it's gone past 11 million cases. So that shows <laughs> you how fast it's progressed. That and then what you, when you say you know, Jameson, cases, what do you mean? In, in, in sales? A year? In, in a, sales a year, yeah. So when we say a case, that's like, a nine, yeah, it's like 12 bottles of Jameson, let's say. Uh, nine okay. liters, of, uh, you know, as we, if you were looking at volume. But a year, I'm saying a year. So... For those, I suppose, for Jameson to get to that 1 million cases, it took 200 years. Um, the bones of actually about 210 years, actually, if, if you go from 1780 to the 1990s. Mm. And then to get another 10 million cases onto that is after taking 25 years. So yeah. it just shows you the change in the last, and especially, especially the last 10 years. Because when I started in 2010, I think we were mm, around 2 million. So then by, uh, I remember we had a kind of a, they gave us a special bottle to celebrate 3 million cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the year, but it was when I was working here. And now, um, you know, recently enough, I know it passed 11 million. So I suppose Jameson led the way and it's allowing us to do all of the other things that are happening in the Irish whiskey industry, even for this distillery, all of the amazing products that we put out there now. Mm-hmm. If you talk. Oh, where's he gone? Literally hundreds of brands, probably thousands of brands 
And then you got to a point in the early 1990s where there was only one shop in one city in the world where you could buy a pot still brand. And it was actually Green Spot. So in Kildare Street, it was the Mitchells and Sun Wine Merchants. And they were the only place, that was the only place that sold on an ongoing basis a retail bottle of Irish pot still whiskey. That's how bad it got. And the only reason they still had it is I mentioned that uh, Irish distillers said we're no longer selling to middlemen, mm-hmm. but the, the Jamesons had a good re- uh, relationship with the Mitchells and the Mitchells made representations to the Jamesons at the time. So what they said is, look, we'll provide you with bottled uh, green spot uh, whiskey that you can sell in your shop as a little kind of a side deal to keep them happy. Mm-hmm. So other brands died off because they could no longer buy this pot still whiskey. We were making pot still whiskey, but we were only selling it blended with grain yeah, for decades. It. So it got, it got to that point. Um, from the 1990s, then some whiskey writers started writing about pot still whiskey, saying how great it is and how delicious it is and how different it is from other whiskeys. Because nearly everywhere around the world, other than America, it's malt whiskey. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, Indian whiskey is is 100% malted barley. Japanese whiskey is malt whiskey. They do some grain whiskey as well. But, you know, if you're talking about the traditional pot distilled whiskey, it's all malt whiskey. We're the only country in the world that produce something that's a bit different. Um, so it kind of grew slowly from there. And, you know, even when I started in 2010, I'd say we had about three pot still whiskeys at that stage that were on the market. I remember there was excitement in 2011 when we released three new pot still whiskies. Uh, I remember here uh, going to the tasting held by Barry Crockett, our master distiller at mm-hmm. the time. And it was um, Powers John's Lane 12-year-old. So Powers, for the first time since 1968, <laughs> could now be bought as a pot still whiskey again. Uh, there was Middleton Barry Crockett Legacy. Again, the same for Middleton. Uh, and there was also Redbreast 15-year-old. You could get Redbreast 12 as a pot still, but no, there was a 15-year-old ongoing available in the shops. Mm-hmm. No, no, there's dozens. There's probably, I don't know, the la- in the last couple of years, there must be 100 pot still whiskeys available, so. um, even more as single cast. So to look at the industry now, even to 13 years ago, is chalk and cheese. It's totally And um, it, yeah, so it's, it's not just because of what we're doing, but it's just the popularity of whiskey as uh, a drink um, throughout the world is just after increasing massively, whether it's as a straight drink or as used in cocktails, because cocktail culture is, mm. you know, mushroomed and, 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 and it's huge everywhere now as well. So that kind Eric, of you're after bringing us on some journey. I, you I have, yeah, it's I've amazing. Straight from the monks right up to modern day uh, whiskey <laughs> consumption. It's amazing. What a fascinating insight. Can I ask Thank you, you for a, just a quick couple of, couple of words? Like it's obviously quite complicated, but if you could describe them in a couple of words, the different places we kind of know whiskey comes from and what makes them different. Because you kind of explained okay. from a technical, but from a taste profile point of view, bourbon, Scotch, Irish whiskey, yeah, Japanese. Yeah, I tell you what they're famous for, maybe because you know there's yeah. different styles made throughout for countries. Sure. But Scotland is, yeah. yeah, Scotland is famous for single malt whiskey or malt whiskey. Single, if you ever see that, it means produced in a single distillery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so, it's, so it's, a single it's... malt would be from let uh, let's say um, uh, Abalower. Uh, it's a distiller in Scotland, and if they produce their malt whiskey, which they do, it's called single malt whiskey. 
And um, it's made, it, it just goes back to that mash bill, that recipe for your grain. It's 100% malted barley. So that's what and the Scots are famous for. Easy, and it's produced... earthy kind of... Yeah, it, it can vary. It can then. vary. But generally, there's a peaty influence in, in the majority of Scotch mm. malts. Um, but that's not always the case. But what mm. they're famous for is malt whiskey. And it has to be produced in copper pots in a traditional manner, and it has to be matured for a minimum of three years. Um, that's what they're famous for. What we're mm. famous for here in Ireland is single pot still whiskey. So from a single distillery. Um, and the the only key difference between that and scotch is that we have to have unmalted grains in the mash bill. So okay. uh, it can be more unmalted barley, um, but you can also use oats, rye, wheat. So that's something different, whereas... In Scotland, it's just all malted barley, or malt okay. as they call it. Um, so that's the key difference. Now, with the pot still whiskey here, uh, it also has to go through the traditional copper pots, and it also mm -hmm. has to be matured for a minimum of three years. Mm -hmm. um, in, in Scotland, they have to mature in oak casks. In Ireland, we have to mature in wooden casks. So that mm -hmm. allows us room to experiment with other woods, which we have done. But generally, it's oak. Um, so you'd say oh, they must taste the same. They don't. Um, they definitely don't. Pots, the difference with pot still whiskey compared to malt whiskey, malt whiskey um, uh, can be a bit more, I suppose, um, I think biscuity and malty, those kind of flavors. Uh, sometimes it's a bit meatier. A lot of our stuff is a bit meatier. Pot still whiskey can generally be a bit more, um, I suppose, um, Spicy, there's a profile that spiciness comes from the unmalted grains. Um, when I say mm -hmm. spicy, I'm thinking cinnamon, um, clove, maybe, maybe kind of light peppery kind of notes. Um, that's kind of the pot still spice, but also what's different here is uh, that unmalted grain actually gives it a, a better mouthfeel. I, I feel it's um, uh, some call it kind of creamy, it's got more texture. Uh, more viscosity, if you know what I mean, more jammy, you know, that kind of, it just, it just has more feeling in the mouth. And that's brought about by the, um, by the unmalted grains. Uh, in America, they're famous for bourbon whiskey. And bourbon whiskey is uh, a whiskey that has to have, you don't need to produce it in the pots. It, a lot of it is produced via the columns. Uh, mm -hmm. And it has to have a minimum of 51% corn or maize. Uh, you can also have other grains in there. So they'd have malted barley generally, but they could also have rye and wheat. Uh, that's the general, and they'd have different proportions in there. Um, and the, the, another key difference for that bourbon is that it has to be matured in new oak casks. So they have to be freshly coopered, uh, brand new. Nothing ever went into them. They put their bourbon spirit into it. When that is uh, emptied out, they can no longer use those casks. Whereas in Scotland and in Ireland, yeah, we can use whatever casks we've those casks. The Scots do, we do. We buy a lot of those casks from uh, the um, cooperages in, in America, but also the cooperages buy it from the bourbon distilleries and they could sell them on to us because they still have lots of flavor. Mm. Nothing wrong with them whatsoever. It's just that their legislation says they can only use it once. Um, the other styles around the world really... Um, they don't have their own specific style to them. Scotland, when they set up what must have been 90 years ago, it was very much to copy the Scotch style 
of whiskey. So a lot of malt um, whiskey distilling, and that's what they tend to do. They do also do grain distilling, etc., but they don't have their own special style. Um, it's the same for everywhere else. The only ones that have a special style would be Scotland, Ireland, and uh, America. And America also got the reputation for rye whiskey. Uh, rye whiskey before Prohibition was the dominant style of American whiskey in America. Um, it got forgotten about, a bit like Irish. It came out of Prohibition and rye and Irish were almost forgotten about. It's, mm -hmm. It has been making a comeback in recent years, but they're also probably most famous for that style of whiskey, which is, again, it's very much made like bourbon, except you have to have 51% rye. That's, mm. the, that's the key difference. 51% uh, rye grains. So they're the real main styles, in my opinion. Um, grain distilling, there's no one country that's famous for grain whiskey. If you're going to say a country that is famous for it, it's probably America because a lot of distillers use these columns to make their bourbon, use these columns to make their rye whiskey, you know. Um, but there's no real, I suppose, one country famous for grain whiskey yeah. uh, using the more modern coffee still or grain still or patent still, as you'd call it. Can you bust a few whiskey myths for us, Eric? Like, um, is the older the whiskey, the better it tastes? Not necessarily. As with everything, it's a matter of taste to an individual. Mm -hmm. So some will prefer that older taste, but that older taste obviously moves more towards the taste from the wood or from the oak. Um, so what happens with, with you know, if you've ever nosed or, or, or tasted a, a new make spirit or a puchin or a moonshine or anything it can be quite thin in the mouth um, mm. and it has some amazing noses and flavors but it's got some other flavors that aren't great it can be a bit sharp etc mm. so by maturing uh, you round off that spirit it's it's very much like wine when you hear of wine that goes into casks it rounds it off it helps to add you know I suppose, viscosity and texture, um, but also it adds in flavor from the cask itself. Uh, the casks literally breed. They're amazing. Um, um, I suppose an amazing uh, mode of maturation, I suppose, an amazing way to kind of, um, a, a very natural way. Coopers produce barrels from staves of wood. They have to bend these woods. They have to hold them together and then fill with a liquid and stop this liquid pouring out all over the place. Mm. And there's, you know, there's no glue, there's no nails, there's nothing like that. So it is, it's an amazing um, profession uh, and it's been involved with, you know, whiskey for for centuries um but what amazingly it that cask can breed so it allows fresh oxygen into the cask and so what happens is it oxidizes the the compounds the flavor compounds in there which they actually it, it, it creates more flavor by doing that so that's from the distillate itself but also the when it breeds the the spirit goes into the wood and then when it expands and breeds it comes back out and what it does is it pulls flavor from the wood that would in order to make it bend the coopers would have you know flamed uh, the inside or toasted the inside or charred the inside of the mm -hmm. cask and what it does is by heat treating the wood you're able to bend it without shattering the wood mm -hmm. so then when you uh, put it into place and you put maybe steel hoops or back in the day they used to put wooden hoops to hold it in place it stays in place and mm -hmm. um, but 
that toasting process creates flavors and those flavors then are, are, are available to the spirit to extract um, into the spirit. And that brings wood flavors in there as well. So the longer you let it mature, the more that it breeds, the more the flavors develop. But also what happens is because it can breed, it evaporates as well. So you get something known as the angel share. And the angel share then is uh, something that happens whereby you lose a bit of volume every year. For example, here in Middleton, we tend to lose about two, two and a half percent of volume per year, which is why aged, more mature whiskies are more expensive mm. because you could fill up a barrel, let's say a sherry butt uh, with, you know, 500 liters. If you came back to it in 40 years time, you might be left with, 30 or 40 liters mm, wow. so it's after evaporating, evaporating. Yeah. the angels they take their share yeah yeah so um and then there's a devil's share as well the devil the devil's share goes into the wood itself uh <laughs> so as soon as you fill let's say it's a, bra a brand new cask the devil is being a bit greedy he takes it immediately when you put it into a fresh cask it goes straight into the wood into itself the wood. Uh, right. soaks into the wood and you'd lose if you pour if you filled it up left it there for a few days and emptied it again you'll get less because the wood is after taking, it's after soaking it in, uh, and uh, it's it, it, it's gone. So we call that the devil's share. Yeah. <laughs> um, Recommendations so yeah. for for drinking and appreciating a whiskey. How would how would you recommend somebody to to enjoy a whiskey? Would you have it neat? Would you have it? Well, yeah. I mean, with Coca Cola. It, well, if, if you're new to whiskey, <laughs> I think if you, if you're new if you're new to whiskey, you start you should probably start with a blended whiskey. So I mentioned earlier on about blended, you know, blended whiskey. Uh, what happens is, uh, yeah, the pot still whiskey, the malt whiskeys, these they're, they're, they've got more flavor. But sometimes that can be off-putting to someone who's new to whiskey. Uh, and the, the by by blending some of the stronger flavors from the pot distilled whiskey with the softer elements of the grain whiskey, you help to kind of soften the palate. You make it a bit more silky. Uh, you make that whiskey a bit more fragrant. So if you're new to whiskey, I would start with a blended whiskey. A mm. good example would be Jameson itself. Mm. Powers is another good one from, from that we produce. And basically, you know, if you're just new to it, nosing a whiskey is, it's, it's a bit like wine. Uh, it's to be appreciated. Uh, it's uh, especially when you're trying to get to know it and learn about it, nose it for a while. Just mm. people know it is not, you know, they don't give enough time to how food smells, how drinks smell, the aromas, because that actually gives you an indication of the flavor. Um, so, you know, you get the right type of glass. A brandy snifter is a good a good example, or, or a sherry copita, something where the, the top of the glass tapers in, because what it does is it brings the aromatics into your nose. Mm. So what I would say is if you're not used to it, be careful, because obviously this is higher ABV, or higher alcohol content than let's say wine. So you just keep your nose away, kind of sniff, and you can get closer. Um, when you get very experienced like myself, you can stick the nose, the big honker right into the glass. But you know, when you're new to it, just take your time <laughs> and just try to ask yourself, what, <laughs> what, how does it smell? Is it, is it nice? Do I enjoy it? Is it, is it sweet? Uh, is it fruity? You know, if it was a scotch, for example, is it smoky? You know, and you know. At the start, you're going to be hit with something that is the dominant flavor for you. Let's say sweet. Um, but if you keep nosing it over time, your 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 nose you 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 start ignoring that sweet, and then you get into the other aromatics and flavors. Then I'd have a little sip, 
at the, you know, generally I'd recommend to get a whiskey at 40%, especially if you're new to whiskey. You don't want to be getting cask strength whiskey, which can be, you know, straight from a barrel. Um, just to let you know, by the way, when we distill, let's say I'm talking about our triple distilled whiskey in the pots, we start off at about 8 to 10% ABV. By the time we've done our triple distillation and, and we have our spirit, it's now about 84% ABV. We then add water to that before we put it into the barrel because the ideal strength for us, and we've a lot of experience going back a couple of hundred years, is about 63% ABV to go into the barrel. And then as time, as that volume is going down while it's maturing and as it's picking up more flavor, it's also going down in volume. But what also happens here in Middleton is that it goes down in strength. So what starts off as 63% ABV might eventually become, you know, 55% ABV when we when we empty it out and we're ready to bottle it. So that is known as cask strength. If you ever come across that in America, they call it barrel proof. So if you see a whiskey with cask strength or barrel proof, look at the strength because it, it could be quite high. And that's the way connoisseurs want it. They want it almost straight from the barrel. Mm -hmm. So a blended whiskey tends to be at 40%. That's the legal limit. That was also introduced in 19, uh, well, not, I can't remember the exact year, but it was during the First World War by Lord jo Lloyd George. I think it was 1916. Um, it used before that it was much higher strength generally, uh, but he introduced that it now is 40%. So that's why 40% is the strength, the legal okay. yeah. uh, limit now um, for whiskey. Um, so it, it kind of goes back just over 100 years, really. Um, but what I'd say then is have a little sip, not too much. Try and let it sit at the front of your mouth because if you're not used to drinking it, you don't want to be swallowing it straight back to throat. And, uh, it, you know, if you're not used to the higher strength, it can kind of, um, you know, it might be a bit off-putting. What I would say is take a little sip into the front of the mouth and try to let it kind of evaporate in the front of the mouth because then that will allow all the flavors to be picked up by your tongue and it will leave, especially with pot still, with a whiskey like Jameson or Powers that has pot still whiskey in there, some of that oiliness, that viscosity, you'll feel it around the front of the tongue and the inside of the cheeks. Um, and then when you swallow it, you'll be looking out for what's known as the finish. The finish then, you know, for example, you might get a, a spicy kind of uh, sweet kind of flavor left in in your mouth and, and in the throat or on the inside of the cheeks. And that's important as well. A good whiskey should have a good nose, should have a nice flavor, um, and when I'm saying the flavor, then it's easier to pick up notes and to describe the fruity and all of that on your nose. In the palate, uh, your palate is a bit more restricted and you generally know if something is sweet, if something is sour, if it's umami, if it's bitter, all of that kind of stuff. But generally, you should get a kind of a nice little sweet note, a um, little bit of spice, etc. And the finish should be something similar. Um, so that's what I'd recommend. But be very, take your time. Add a few drops of water if you want, water. because, yeah, that's definitely it. If if you find that it's a bit too strong, add a few drops of water. Try it again, and don't ever let anyone say that you shouldn't add water to a whiskey. Uh, I was in Dublin a few years ago. I went to a whiskey event. Afterwards, we went to a well-known whiskey bar, and there was a few few of the people from the event with me. So I went up to buy them a couple of whiskeys from Middleton. I said to the bartender after he brought up the whiskeys, uh, I was going to pay. I said, "Could you give me a little jug of water with that, please?" And he said, "You don't want that." And I said, "Why don't I want that?" He said, "Because you want to drink this whiskey the way the distiller wants you to drink it." And I said, "I am the distiller." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I said, this is the way I want it. And I kind of explained to him that adding water actually opens up a whiskey, especially if it holds on to the flavors, it will not release them from the glass. Um, the, uh, and it's the same when you take it on the palate. If there's too much alcohol, alcohol is, it has a drying sensation. Uh, and what it does is it masks some of those lovely oily characteristics. So it ends up being too dry. So while adding water in a glass, it opens up these, um, it's at the molecular level. These, these, the, these alcohol molecules that join together and, and stop other flavors, they start getting broken up. And when they get broken up, they start evaporating. And with that evaporation, that's when you get the, the flavor molecules coming out of the glass as well. And then when you put it in your palate, it's the same thing. Uh, it opens it up. It allows those kind of oily, the, they're called long-chain fatty esters, but they then will you'll feel them on your tongue and you'll feel those flavors. You'll feel the mouthfeel, the oiliness, the creaminess, but also you get the, the flavors. So adding water actually is a good thing. For quality in the distillery, we bring everything down to 20%, not to have in our palate because we drive to work, most of us, because we, we couldn't do that. But we, on nosing it, it helps us to, to nose exactly what's in that glass. So we bring it to 20%. Um, so, you know, generally when you're drinking a whiskey, you don't want to go that low because you want to keep that mouthfeel, but a few drops will help, yeah. definitely. Eric, that's unreal. It's like, what have you learned today? I was like, okay, the colonial tax system nearly killed the market, and then now it's bigger. Um, <laughs> and whiskey is basically my wadi, my wadi for adults. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eric. That was absolutely fascinating. I don't know where the time went, but I was just gathered up in that whirlwind of information. I had no idea going into it what way we were going to chat to Eric, and it was yeah, I was absolutely captivated too. <laughs> good stuff um guys uh if you want to read more of eric's writings then do check out the irish whiskey magazine um he's a regular contributor and you can find him online where can you find him online i don't think he actually he's got a good really linkedin profile he's got a very good linkedin profile <laughs> an unreal linkedin profile so anyway listen the next time you do pour a drop of powers whiskey just remember that it was Eric who was the distiller there. Folks, it's been an absolute pleasure having you with us. This is the Neighbour Food Podcast. We are your hosts, Jack and Jolene, and we'll see you soon. See you. <laughs>